It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Why not call Doug, Linda, and Deborah right now at 919-860-9783 with your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Well, Doug, Linda, you know, we get a lot of questions on a weekly basis about something called target date funds. And because this is such a unknown or mystery to many people, even the ones who are participating in target date funds, I thought we might go over some things that you need to know about the target date funds and this retirement strategy. Yeah. When we began this radio program uh, in 1990, wasn't it? Yeah, 1990. 1990. You and Linda started. There were no target date yeah. funds. And yet now they've become uh, the set it, forget it investments, almost ubiquitous in 401k plans. And employers are using them as like a default choice for workers who neglected to pick an investment option for their accounts. And yet, I think there's a big ignorance out there. Since they were first brought to the market, these assets have tripled in size. But if you're one of those passive target date fund investors, you'd be wise to get up to speed as you slide toward retirement. After all, once you clock out, then you're not bound to remain in the fund that your employer selected for you. And even though those funds all have the same purpose, funds with the same target retirement date can have widely varying notions of what constitutes a bullseye. The closer you are to needing your savings, the more crucial it is that these differences become to you. What's true for all target date funds is that they invest in a mixture of stocks, bonds, and cash. And this mix of investments varies over time, starting out with what they feel is aggressive, stock-heavy allocations when investors are young and far from their target, usually some anticipated retirement date, and then becoming what's supposedly increasingly conservative as investors get older and closer to their goal. But Doug, how funds define conservative is inconsistent. Exposure to stocks, which is the main cause of volatility, it can range from 55% to 10% amongst funds that have reached their target date and are thus catering to those who are already retired or nearing retirement. Yeah, the explanation is that about 35% of target date funds expect to get you to retirement. The remaining 65% of those funds expect to help you get through retirement. And there's a big difference. Do you want a target amount of money at the time that you retire or 
all the way through retirement. That's called the glide path. Those just getting you to retirement assume that you're going to need the bulk of your assets right away so they become, quote, quote, more conservative, moving you into more bonds about five years before this target date. And those with a get-you-through-retirement approach move you into bonds far more slowly, often over the course of another decade or two. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Call us at Lewis Financial Management if you have questions about your financial planning. Our number to call is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Now, there's an ultra-conservative approach that some of these target date fund managers use. And this is when, for example, some of the fund's allocations at the end. So let's say you had a 2020 target date. In 2020, some funds will make that allocation of stocks drop down to 10%. And the remaining amount, that 90%, is in cash. Yeah. And then on the other end, the other philosophy is a year after a fund reaches its target date, the portfolio starts shifting back into stocks. Within five years, then, it's going to rise to 32% stocks, and it's going to remain there throughout your retirement. Now, by contrast, there's still another type of way that these target date funds are uh, allocated, and that's when there's a large stock position at the target date, maybe 55% of the portfolio, and then over the next 20 years, the fund company will ratchet down to about 20% of stocks. Yeah, this whole matter of the target date funds, you could say, well, what are the the big giants doing? Okay. The two big giants of the industry's top players of mutual fund companies, they fall somewhere in the middle. Both of them have glide paths that would have the investors at about 50% in stocks at retirement. Both of them gradually move the assets into what they consider a more conservative mix over the next several years into bonds. At the point that the fund managers stop making these age-related adjustments, about seven years after the target date, one of the biggies automatically shifts investors who remain with their target date fund into retirement income funds with only a slight allocation to stocks and the bulk of them in bonds. Well, so Doug... What's wrong with this advice? Yeah, I think that's the whole thing. Most investors need to understand what's wrong. And I would say what's really wrong, and I will preface my remarks by saying you should avoid all target date funds. I'll just say that right outright. You don't want to be in target date funds because there's a basic underlying assumption, which is class assumption. The assumption is that stocks are risky, bonds are safe. And that is a false assumption. So the whole underlying assumption to target date funds is wrong. It's based on classes. One class stocks, another class cash, and another class bonds. And then they apply a ratio. How much of this class, how much of this class, how much of this class, and then they apply that to years. Hmm. All right, so you're starting with the wrong set of assumptions. You can't bet on the class. That 
is going to be a recipe for disaster. Right. Right. Well, then what's right? What is the right approach to choosing investments in your mutual and in your employer's uh, list of options? Yeah. Let's use an analogy. For example, if all of a sudden uh, you're sick and some doctor says you need an operation, you're not going to go and say, well, I just need to get an operation. That's all. I just need an operation. What kind of operation? Who's the operator? Who's the surgeon? We don't want to look at classes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm right. serious. We don't want to look at class. I like the analogy. You like the analogy? I think it's great. All right, yeah. I think most people don't even ask the question. Yeah, well, and, and if I'm going to be betting my money on my retirement, I want to know who is the man or woman, the manager, who is picking these stocks mm-hmm. or these bonds. That's right. Or whatever it is. So in my opinion, never bet on the class. You're actually... In what you, what I would say is higher risk, much higher risk than any other approach. It's a false sense of security. It's a false sense of security based on underlying assumptions which are wrong. But the right answer is use the active manager approach. Because then you can go ahead and you can look at how did this manager do last year, the year before, the year before, the year before. Right. You can't do that with a class. Right, right. And Doug, I would say that getting advice that is customized to your retirement needs, that's the key. The investment selection list of your 401k or your 403b will include more than target date funds. You need to choose investments that will be right for you based on your needs and all of your assets. Because most of the time, your 401k is rarely all that you and you and, you and your spouse own. Yeah, and that's where we come in. We will help you find the managers who actually have performed satisfactorily to you. We don't look at the class. We look at the managers, and then we explain to you these managers and why we recommend those managers to you. And then you have the right way to position your 401k or your non-401k. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Doug, let's take a call. Mary, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? Hi. Um, we have a question about variable life insurance. Okay. Um, my husband and I are in our late 30s, and we're trying to do some planning here for college, for Two kids, one a year old and another one on the way. All right. And we're, um, we've got income in the low 100000 range and probably a, a net asset range of around 400000 And we have minimal life insurance right now, mm-hmm. just provided through an employer. And so we were talking to a few folks, um, a couple folks here in town, and both of them have recommended variable life insurance as a way to provide um, more life insurance now and to save on a tax-deferred basis for college. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. Well, first of all, we need to be careful that we don't call a chicken a duck and we don't call a duck a chicken. You want to be very cognizant of what you're doing and why you're doing it and what it is that you're doing it with. Now, you have just said that your combined family income is $100,000. In the low 100s. uh, Give me a number and I'll jot it down. $120,000. All right. So we've got $120,000 of income Mm -hmm. and you're both, uh, you're in your late 30s. Uh 
You're both employed, self-employed or working for solid uh, uh, companies? Working for other companies. Okay, working for other. Any danger of loss of jobs? Um, not in the near term. Okay. And your children are how old? Um, one's almost two and another one's on the way. All right. Two and one on the way. All right, now what do you have in the way of an investment portfolio now? What are your present investment assets? Forget your 401ks. Okay. Um, we're, we're extremely, we're very conservatively invested right now. We've got money sitting in, um, in some CDs. How much do you have in cash and CDs? Um, in cash and CDs together, we have over $100,000. Boy, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Why are you doing that? Well, it's... Uh, We've been uh, thinking about buying a new house and have decided not to. So we. Oh, we, so you get. I see. I so see. So we've decided that it's almost time to do something. It, it's time to do something. Right. So that's why. Okay. You know, like I said, we went and talked to a couple folks about. Oh yeah. Well, know, all right. Financial plans and both of them have come back with variable life. Yeah. Well, they they pay a great commission, by the way. They they they're a real high commission ticket. But let's go on. All right. What else do you have? You know. So you have no investments so far out of that hundred. Yeah. Um, we have. Well, we have one hundred twenty thousand roughly in. Cash and CDs. We have another about um, forty to fifty thousand in several stocks, and then we have um, our, our real estate assets are um, worth um, a couple hundred thousand dollars. This is commercial real estate, no. not your residence. No, our residence. Our residence. Okay, that's not an investment either. Okay, yeah, that's not investment. No, that's a use asset. All right. Well, my first observation, and remember, I began by saying you don't want to call a chicken a duck or a duck a chicken. Right. All right. Insurance pays off to somebody when you die. It's a transfer of risk. Okay. Mm -hmm. Your world is basically divided into two estates, a living estate and a death estate. Your living estate is your investment portfolio and what you accumulate yourself. Your death estate factors in that plus what's transferred by risk using insurance. Insurance, even by law, and by the way, it's very interesting, I don't know if any, if either of the insurance agents ever mentioned to you the investment potential of the uh, variable life insurance. It's interesting, it's against the law in North Carolina to call insurance an investment, <laughs> because it's not. It is not an investment by any, by any means. What uh-huh. and an, an insurance policy is a policy, which if you die tomorrow, it pays somebody a lot bigger than what you Gave as a premium. You need to do an educational needs analysis, number one, and then back into that and find out how much money needs to be set aside on a monthly basis to reach that, that, time, that point at that time. And then number two, you want to go ahead and pick the funds according to the risk parameters, whether you want balanced funds or growth and in income funds, and you need to work in the world of investments to meet that need. For life insurance, you need to approach it the exact opposite. Do a needs analysis on life insurance. You may need no insurance. If you need no insurance, for sure, you shouldn't even be talking about insurance. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You can get a cheap 20-year level term policy for next to nothing if you're in your 30s that might cover you more than adequately until you can self-insure. You see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So I think you're getting several issues confused, and I have nothing against insurance. It's a, it's a wonderful vehicle for transferring risk and for supporting. And I had one client who died a week before last, and I was very happy that we had the insurance policy to go ahead and uh, take care of the widow with. On the other hand, very often we find there is zero need for insurance. But for college education, never use life insurance. Okay. Does, does that help, Mary? 
Yeah, that does. Mary, and probably what you'll want to do when you use, you know, a financial planner, uh, have them do an analysis based on whatever the value of your estate is to determine whether the insurance that you have through your employer is going to be enough to uh, meet the need of the family if one of you should predecease the other. Um, They're separate needs analyses, and you never make the duck walk like a chicken or the chicken walk like the duck. That's not what you should be doing. You shouldn't be confusing the two because they're not the same. I think you need financial planning, Mary. I think I think she does, too. <laughs> you need to see a financial planner, not an insurance agent. Okay. I can send you some information if you'd like. If you'll just call me at the office at 872-7000, 872-7000. I might be able to, you know, send some brochures or some information that might get you on track. Okay. All right. Thanks. Yep, thanks so much. Thanks for calling, Mary. Uh-huh. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. I also forgot to mention to Mary that she should go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. DougAndLinda.com. And that will help her also. But, you know, I'm thinking... This whole matter of, there are two issues here that we're discussing at the same time. Number one, there's the issue of risk transfer. Right, the need for life insurance. Right. For example, it would be stupid for me to buy uh, automobile life insurance, I mean automobile insurance, if I didn't have a car. Right. If I was, uh, like, I've got one client, and he only rides a bicycle. He just, he rides his bicycle to work for 30 years now. He just rides. So to buy car insurance for him, there's no risk of what happens to his car because he didn't have a car. Right. Okay. All right. So the first subject is risk transfer. Insurance, by law, is a product in which we transfer a risk that we're facing to an insurance company. So now we have to quantify that risk. What is that risk? And the risk in a situation like Mary's, a young couple, we want to find out, all right, if either one of them dies, then what is the, what does it look like? In other words, the remaining income from the other one and the living expenses, what's the shortfall? Or if it's the husband that dies, for example... And if the wife has children, then maybe she won't be able to work or she wants to stop working, take care of her children. So we need to go ahead and start with what is the need and we need to quantify it. You don't just draw straws and say, oh, let's get this much. What is the need? Once you have the dollar amount of the need to support the surviving spouse and the children, then you go ahead and say, how much of this need can be covered by my existing investments. Right. And then what is still uncovered, that's the risk. Right. And I got to cover that risk. So how do I cover that risk? I then get insurance to cover that risk until when? Until there's no more risk. Right. If the investments are big enough to cover that risk, then I don't need insurance. That's what people mean by the phrase, I'm able to then... Self-insure. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So So the the risk does go away. It's to cover it until it goes away. Absolutely. Now we come to the the second question. What kind of insurance should I be getting to cover that risk? 
And the short answer is the cheapest thing possible. Right. We're not expecting this to go to to. We're not expecting to own this risk for the rest of our lives. That's and right. yet life insurance that you would own for the rest of your life is often described as if this investment would be something uh, that would be made through the insurance. Well, yeah, let's go more slowly, though. Okay. Deborah. Let's go more slowly. All right. What you said is absolutely right when you said we're not expecting we're not expecting even to to have this risk occur. Right. I'm not expecting that my wife is going to die if I'm buying insurance. I'm covering a risk for something that I think won't happen, but if it does happen. So I'm hoping that this money that I give to the insurance company to cover this risk, I'm hoping they get to keep it and I never go ahead and need it. Right. I'm hoping to throw it away. Exactly. That's what we do with car insurance. That's what we do with insurance on our home when we think our home might burn down. All those types of needs we expect. So therefore... If the insurance company will cover me, I want the cheapest dollar amount for them to cover that risk. Got it. So now we come to the question, well, well, what is this other thing called variable life insurance or whole life insurance or any other kind of life insurance? Those are the more expensive insurances. They are, they, there's a sales pitch there. And the sales pitch is, oh, well, you're building up money in a cash account that you can borrow out. Or you're putting money into an investment portfolio of mutual funds that you can go ahead and get back out again. I'll borrow from yeah, myself. Yeah. The whole story is full of false assumptions and it's a heavy sales pitch. You've now made the chicken become a duck. You've now made this insurance policy which is designed to transfer risk into something that it's not meant for. So what happens if you borrow from yourself? That means the death benefit's going to be less. The right? death benefit is less. And why did you even do it? If you if you wanted to go ahead and use it for your retirement portfolio, buy investments. Don't pay double for all of the things that are in it. And that's the confusion that's out there. Life insurance is to cover risk. Investments for retirement are for retirement and are investments, and you shouldn't try to mix the two because it's uh, it's, it's it's a losing game. You know, I was speaking to a couple the other day, and they said, uh, you know, they really need financial planning. But along the drive, the you know, the question came up, and, and he said, we, we've got a million dollars on each, each of us. And I said, well, which one of you has the higher income? And it was the husband, of course. And uh, he's already retired, but he's got another business that he's doing. He's self-employed. His wife works with him part-time. But she's also a real estate agent. And But it is important, isn't it, to do a needs analysis to yes. see what are the debts? What is the income? If your husband died and you lost that income... How would you replace it? So there is the need. And so for those of you that may be listening to the show this evening, think about that. Have you visited and revisited how much life insurance you have? And what is your need? And what is your total need? Maybe you need comprehensive financial planning. We can help you at Lewis Financial Management. Call us during the week. Our number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we have answers for you. Well, Doug, um, you know, there was a very, very excellent article that we saw in the Wall Street Journal. 
and it was entitled, Who's Inheriting Your 401k? Linda, I'm glad you caught that article because most Americans believe that their retirement savings will be divided according to the instructions in their will, just like all their other assets. But that is not the case. In fact, who inherits retirement money is usually determined by the language on the beneficiary designation forms that people filled in years and years and years ago, and they've totally forgotten it. And usually things have changed. So among some of those changes that you might not be aware of is naming your beneficiary as your parent and while you're single and then failing to update that later when you get married. So you want to check it if that's changed in your life or naming your children, but not stipulating that the money should go to your grandchildren if any of your children die before you. So. These are some of the common mistakes. They are. And, you know, let's say you have mistakenly uh, left a marriage beneficiary, or let me say it another way. Let's say you have mistakenly forgotten that a former spouse was still named was still named as your <laughs> beneficiary. You know, Basically even if, what you're saying is you got divorced and you got remarried you, uh, and took care of, of you know, settling of all, matters. But, but you didn't deal with this thing here. Even if your assets were, 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 were divided into the divorce settlement, that beneficiary that you have hanging around there from 30 years earlier, They'll that still. supersedes. Yeah. So we can have a lot of problems here. Another one that's not so um, negative but is also practical is there, there can, it can be a situation where a parent has given a child part of the business or the child has taken over the business. And the other three children, they may have no inheritance to speak of and the parent might want to leave the, uh, retire, the retirement plan to the other three children who aren't going to inherit in another way. Very common. And if you didn't change it, then now you have have the four children, let's say in our example, inheriting the IRA and it's not so fair and it wasn't what the parent wished. So those, you know, so those desires are, you know, whatever your desires are for your assets to be transferred, you know, uh, when you set up your investment authorization form, I know that what you have to designate a specific beneficiary. You do. So you need to revisit that, right, Doug? I mean, that's yeah. the essence of what this article is saying is that you set it Things up change. and then you work for years, sometimes decades, and you've accumulated money in your IRA. But... What should happen, Doug? Well, you're right, Lynn. There are so many situations. The article cited one client who named her live-in boyfriend as a beneficiary of her IRA, and later she moved away, married another man, and as she lay dying of cancer, her husband tried to get the beneficiary form revised, but she was no longer mentally competent to make the change. Yeah. I mean, story after story are, are, are always in front of us. If your adult child dies before you and you don't change your beneficiary forms, that child's heirs will typically be cut out of any bequest that you mean to give to them. And here you need to know that each state has its own laws as to how assets will pass, per surface, per capita. You need to know these things. That's exactly right. And a financial planner is exactly uh, the person who's going to help you deal with all these issues. Yes, it's just an IRA, but then there's a beneficiary form, and then there's estate planning considerations. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Have you seen the Lewis Financial Management website? 
It's easy to get to DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. So, Doug, if we're talking about, you know, IRAs or 401ks, but specifically IRAs being inherited by children, what is the best way to handle IRA beneficiaries uh, when they are too young to sensibly handle money so that it can be available to them later? Yeah, this becomes a bigger problem. Okay. You know, let's say that you are in your 70s. You have worked all these years. You've accumulated a large uh, retirement plan, whether it be a 401k that was rolled into an IRA or a series of, but you've got a large retirement account. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know that at your death, you wanted to go to your wife if you are a male. And if you're a female, you wanted to go to your husband. Okay. But then the question is, what about my kids? Do I really want my kids to have dumped on them at the age at a very young age. Yeah, let's say, let, let's say, for example, that you had kids who were like 21, 25, and 27. Do They're not want, even 30 years old that's yet. That's right. Do you want to dump on them a couple million dollars? And clients ask that question, what's the way to handle this so that they don't get in trouble? And there are two methods that are being promoted these days. One option is to name a trust as the beneficiary of the IRA instead of naming the children outright. I like that. Yeah. The typical thing you see is a spouse is the first beneficiary and then the beneficiary form says, if my spouse is not living, then it goes to my children, which is the problem. So now we could say if my my children... If my spouse is not living, it would go to a trust. That's exactly right. Well, that's one way. That's one way. Okay. Mm -hmm. What's the other way? The other way is uh, to... It's known as the trust IRA and or the individual retirement trust. And here the IRA provider serves as the trustee distributing the IRA assets to the beneficiaries as you stipulate. Now, these two methods both are being uh, talked about and they're very good methods, but they are uh, they're, they're very difficult. There's a lot of uh, very specific regulations and cost in doing it this way. Okay. Personally, I like to use the method that we use in our firm, which is very different from these two methods, which would be method number three. I happen to think that we have solved the real problem without all of the cost and the uh, problems that uh, the IRS is imposing on these two methods that are used. And what's that method? Well... Let's say that I have named my spouse as my first beneficiary, but if she is not alive, I don't name my children. Okay. I name my estate as the beneficiary. All right. So now if my spouse has passed away, then this whole IRA comes back to my estate. Okay. Now what? In my will... My instructions are that anything that I own at my death, if my spouse is not alive, will have will go into a trust for my children. And now all of those assets come into the estate and flow into the children's trust. And there is no IRS requirement now to regulate it. Now, it is uh-huh. true there is taxes. Okay. But now I can say I want my children 
to get a monthly income for the next 10 years after I die or until they are age 30 or 40, whatever. And then I'd like a quarter of that trust to go out to each of the kids at that time when they hit a certain age at 40 or at 45 or at 50. You can design the children's trust any way you want. And there's no IRS regulations that are being superimposed on you. And the nice thing is the trustee who runs the trust, very often we have it be a relative or it might even be one of the children themselves. So th- so it sounds like you really can solve the problem using this technique. You've, number one, given the uh, the wealth to the trust to be parceled out. You spoke about the income starting immediately uh, to the children for their benefit. And in addition, you didn't make it so cumbersome that there was going to be a lot of cost involved that was going to eat away at it. That's right. That's exactly right. So avoiding the issues that the two options which are being uh, talked about by state attorneys, you may pay more taxes, but you have a much cleaner a way to do what you want to do with your children. Well, very nice. That sounds like a, an excellent solution. It certainly does. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Margaret, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? I was asking you a question. We um, are interested in finding out if uh, you can be the manager of your trust and then uh, direct the proceeds of it um, to, to go to uh, your children uh, who uh, uh, might need uh, assistance. Tell me a little bit about your situation, Margaret. How old are you? Well, I'm. Uh, we're at a perfect age. <laughs> we're both retired. Okay. Yay! Are, are, are you are in your sixties? Uh, well, beyond that. You're in your seventies. Yes. Okay. You're in your seventies, and that's important to understand the age because of the six sixty four trust. Uh, all right. The second thing I need to know is uh, what are your income sources right now? The total dollars that you have on regular income. About one hundred ninety-one thousand. All right, and does that last year? Yes. Now, does that meet all of your living expense needs? Yes. Okay. So your expenses are less than one hundred ninety-one thousand. Yes. Okay. Very good. Now let's take a look at what might be suitable for the six sixty-four trust. First of all, what? How much do you have in regular in non-retirement investments? That would be stocks, bonds, mutual funds, all CDs, et uh, CDs so, all everything that's not in a retirement account. Well, everything's retirement. Okay, so you have no investments that are not in retirement plans. Well, we do have stocks and bonds. Right. About how much is that? Uh, two and a half million. All right, about two and a half million, and that's that's in non-retirement. That's not in IRAs or four or four hundred one k's. That's not in an IRA account. It's not right? in an IRA. It's a 403B. It is in a 403B? Yes. Okay. All right. It's important to understand nothing in a 403B can go into a charitable trust. Oh, you can't put it in a charitable trust. And that's 664. That's right. The 664 trust, you can only put things into it that 
are not part of a 403B, a 401K, an IRA, a pension, a profit sharing, and so forth. Now, let me ask you, do you have any investments that are not in your 403B? Oh, yes. How much do you have there? Somewhere around a million and a half. All right. Now, that million and a half, if that is investment money that has a tax for capital gain on it, yes, that can go into a 664 trust, and it can go ahead and be sold inside the trust and avoid all capital gains taxes, pay no taxes, and then you are the manager of that trust. Yes, you are. It's called the trustee, and you pay yourself and your husband a lifetime income. Yes, you do, just as if it's a pension. And your question then is, if I'm paying myself and I pay no taxes on any of the sales of any of the things in this trust, can I direct some of it to my children? Yeah. And the answer to that question is yes, but no longer than 20 years after your life. We have uh, uh, children who have to uh, be, unfortunately, uh, have a conservator. Then you have a disability trust problem. Yes, indeed. That's also, oh, you have disabled that, children. Yes, we well, do. This, this, this can be tied to that need very well. There are ways we can do that, and the way you do that, you have a disability trust because your children probably are qualifying to get disability income. Correct? Oh, yeah. You yes. want to make sure that no money ends up directly in their hands. Oh, that couldn't be. Uh, that's right. That's, that's right. It's got to be funneled into the disability trust. Mm-hmm. So you could tie together the charitable 664 trust and insurance proceeds, and you can move everything through your channels to end up after you both, you and your husband both pass away, into the disability trust. Yes, it can be worked out. If you'd like more information on how to do this, if you call my office, my office number is... Eight seven two All right. seven thousand. All right. That's USA seven thousand. USA seven thousand. Yes, that, ma'am. That's, in, that's Raleigh. in Raleigh. So the area code's nine one nine. Raleigh. Right. Yes. Yeah. Write down your questions, Margaret, and if you'll call the office, you know we can take down some information, and we can also send you some information. All right. Especially because you you've got a special situation with the children. Yes, we do. And you'd want to make sure that everything's in order to oh, be. Okay. All right, now let me, ask, to let me ask you a question. How yes, much ma'am. do you charge per hour? Well, I don't like to announce hourly <laughs> rates on the air because it's not proper. But we, but, but, but when it, I call you, you will tell me. Uh, yes, yeah, ma'am. of course. The problem people get into is they try to get free advice from a salesperson instead of looking for advisors. But uh-huh. the investment advisor is one who, by law, must put your interests first and tell you what according to his knowledge and wisdom, is able to work best for you. But you have a sophisticated situation or a complicated situation that needs sophisticated advice. And I think you deserve to see a registered investment advisor, whether it be us or someone else. It doesn't matter to me, but it can be done. You can achieve your objectives if you do it right. And the 664 Trust might play into the disability trust scenario. All right. Yes, well, we're definitely, uh, we have to make arrangements. Yes, ma'am. Just give us a call. 
and we enjoyed your, your, your call this afternoon. Well, thank you very much. I certainly appreciate your help. Okay. And, uh, yes, you'll be hearing from us. All right. Very good. Thank Take you. care, Margaret. And you too. Have a wonderful week. Thank you very much. Take Bye-bye. care now. Bye-bye. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Doug, what's new in the world of estate planning? Well, Lynn, the revocable living trust... An estate planning tool has at least five key benefits which cannot be overlooked. First, there's probate. The court supervision of transferring assets from your estate to your heirs. All assets transferred to a trust before you die bypass probate and are not included in your probated estate. Second, elimination of time delays of probate. When the executor files your will, it becomes public record, and creditors are notified to make claims. The final income and estate tax returns are filed, and a minimum of nine months must go by before the assets are distributed to the heirs. It can often take years. When you establish a revocable living trust, you transfer all your property ownership to it, and the trust assets do not go through probate. They are taxable, but not probatable. Third, avoidance of contention. For example, you may plan to leave a large inheritance to a second spouse, which would anger children from your first marriage. Rarely have embittered heirs been able to invalidate living trusts in court. Fourth, privacy. When your executor files your will at the courthouse, it becomes public record. Because the trust is not filed with any court, it remains private even at death. Fifth, the trust can provide for a successor trustee to manage your assets if you are physically or mentally incapacitated. It can let you avoid being placed under a court-appointed guardian if you can't manage your own affairs. You see, you generally name yourself as trustee when setting up the trust, and then name a successor trustee, and since it is a revocable trust, you can make any changes you wish during your lifetime. The revocable living trust is somewhat costly, but more and more people are finding that it provides choice and flexibility. Since it's a revocable trust, you're never locked in, and since you're the trustee, you haven't lost any responsibilities of power. If you've been wondering about revocable living trusts, I hope my comments have helped. Remember, act wisely, and if you have any financial questions, call me at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. And remember, your financial future is at stake. Well, Doug, you've been telling more and more people about the need for a financial roadmap. And what exactly do you mean by that? Well, Lynn, you know, a financial roadmap is really, it's a crucial item. The financial plan itself, a financial plan document, is or should be a financial roadmap. And no one would try and take a journey from here to Alaska or here to uh, Wisconsin without a roadmap. The same way... You should have a roadmap, and the financial plan should be a roadmap that has different style and uh, from different planners and so forth. But no matter how it is uh, stylized, it should definitely have at least 13 sections that it covers. And the first section of a financial plan should be your personal data section. It should include all the personal information about you your kids, your parents, all the personal family data, if you've been married before, but the personal data section should be the first section of your financial plan. Exactly, and each area should be addressed to the extent that it suits a person's personal situation. So uh, along with the personal data, the second element of a financial plan would be a person's goals and objectives, right, Doug? 
Right. That's um, very crucial. People sometimes need to just sit down and think about what are our goals, you know, whether you're married or single or if you're a widow or whatever your situation is. You have a, certain goals and objectives for your life. So you need to sort of think about those things and have some priority and some desired time frame. But a lot of people just say, I, I don't know. They've never really put their goals down. Exactly. When do I want to be financially independent? When do I want to retire? What about educating my children? What about my cash flow? What about my, my credit cards and so forth? Uh, but the third section of a financial plan should be the, the issues and problems section. This section should be an identification of the areas that are problem areas, like college education cost or taxes. A financial plan should analyze the taxes, the cost to educate your children, major illnesses in the past, or any other factors that may develop into a problem. Sometimes the client knows them. Sometimes the planner identifies them. But they should be put into a separate section in the plan called issues and problems area. The fourth element of a person's financial plan should be assumptions that are used in the plan preparation. And that would include such issues as inflation, investment growth, mortality rates, and other material assumptions that would be included within the financial plan. Right, Doug? Right, Lynn. For a financial plan to really work as a roadmap, those first four sections, the personal data section, the goals and objectives section, the issues and problems section, and the assumptions section are the ones the plan is built on. Now, starting with the fifth section, we should get into the numbers, and the fifth section should be the net worth section or the financial statement or the balance sheet of the client. That should be an analysis, which includes all of the client's assets, that's everything they own, all of their liabilities, that's everything they owe, and then a calculation of what they're worth, and it should have different backup schedules to these, and then presumably it should have some comments by the financial planner about how the financial statement looks. What does it look? Does it look good, bad compared to other people and so forth? So that's the fifth section of a financial plan, the balance sheet or net worth analysis section. The sixth element or the sixth section of a financial plan should include your cash flow management. And this would include any statements or analysis that describes or details the sources of your income. Where's all your income coming from and where's it all going? What are you spending all this money that's coming in for? This is vitally important within the plan, right, Doug? Well, the sixth section is the most important section to most people, the cash flow section, because this says, just as you said, it's everything coming in that you're making, it's everything going out that you're spending, and whether you have excess or shortfall, if you have more coming in than going out on your expenses, then how do I invest it? How do I use it to get the other goals met? If I have a shortfall... How do I budget myself to get back in line? But the cash flow section should have a detailed analysis of the cash flow and then recommendations by the financial planner. And this is usually the section that really needs a lot of attention for people that are planning on retirement or young couples that have high income, whatever the problem may be. And some people just don't, they don't ever look at, they know it's coming in and they know it's going out and they never track what's going out, but... Nobody's All ever sudden, analyzed the living expenses. Yeah, you need to put the brakes on and, and look at it, right, Doug? Yeah, that's right, Lynn. Now, that's the sixth section. Got any idea what the seventh section would be? Taxes. You're right. The seventh <laughs> section should be taxes. There should be a section on income taxes, uh-huh. which should be an analysis of all the income taxes for a certain period of years that are projected uh, in my financial plans. I do four years ahead of time, a four-year projection, but it should be a projection of income taxes 
It should show the nature of the income, whether it's fees, commissions, whether it's a portfolio income, passive income, and so on. Uh, and then it should show the marginal tax brackets. And then it should show uh, what ifs and then recommendations, what to do about the income taxes to make sure you're paying the least amount necessary and with the best tax benefits. We're talking about the financial roadmap that most people should address or should look at and the 13 elements of a financial plan document that a person should look for if they are working with a financial planner or thinking of doing so, right? Yeah. The eighth element of a financial plan should include your risk management or your insurance. People need to find out whether or not they're adequately insured. And this section would be an analysis of your financial exposure relative to mortality and morbidity, your liability and your property, including your business if you own one. And it should list and it should analyze your current policies that you have and problems that may include but may not be limited to the need for life insurance, disability, medical and health insurance, property and casualty, and liability and business as well. Long-term nursing care, all kinds of insurance coverages. Analysis, are you properly insured? Do you have too much or too little insurance? And do you have the right kind of insurance? The ninth section of a financial plan to really work as a roadmap has to be investments. That should be a listing of all the current investment portfolio, uh, which investments you should keep, which ones you should uh, liquidate, reposition. There should be a liquidity analysis of your investment portfolio, a diversification analysis, an investment risk exposure analysis. It should include your risk tolerance, your ability to understand different investments, and all kinds of things in the investment section. That's the ninth section of a good financial plan. The 10th section of a financial plan should include financial independence, retirement planning and education and other special needs. People that are working usually have a plan that one day they don't want to be working anymore. They want to be golfing or traveling or whatever. So this section of your plan would be an analysis of the capital that you would need at some future time to provide for your specific needs. And this analysis should include a projection of the resources that are expected to be available to meet these needs at that time. So if it's retirement planning, how much do you need to accumulate to be able to support you at that time of your life? If it's college funding, how much will you need to educate your baby 18 years from now when they start college, right? Very crucial, yes, to be able to be financially independent. The last section of the financial plan is the estate section. It should identify the assets in your estate, analyze how much taxes are going to be paid or due, on a state uh, at the time that you die, what about probate cost, all the things in your estate, and uh, to make sure it's going to happen the way you want it to happen should be in that section. And you now, know, Doug, I, I wanted to say something here. People may not realize it, but this is this section, the estate planning section, is so important, especially if you're working with an attorney, right, Doug? Because when you're working with a financial planner that's helping you analyze your estate. Your financial planner generally will have the current value of the estate, whereas your attorney may not Rarely, know. rarely do attorneys have any of the numbers. You should never do a financial plan th- uh, estate section with an attorney until you've met with a financial planner first. They should be a team working together. I will say there's two other sections in a financial plan to work as a good roadmap. One is the recommendation section. It should have clear recommendations for each of the sections. And then lastly, there should be an implementation schedule in of what to do when. 
what do I need to implement in each of these sections and, and an action list? If these 13 sections are there, then you have a real financial roadmap that will get you to the place you want to be. Write down some of the questions that you have, and certainly if there's anything we can do to assist you with this, we'd be happy to do so. And that number here in Raleigh is 8727000, USA 7000. And I believe we have another caller. Doug, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Uh, my question concerned uh, a sole proprietorship versus uh, incorporating. Uh-huh. I own a business. i got about a six-year-old business that uh, has been growing relatively steady. And aside from liability, what, what are the advantages of uh, incorporating? Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, Doug. How old are you? 31. You're 31. You're married or single? Married. Married. Any children? Two. Two children. And these children are living at home? Yes. All right. Uh, what's your income? Uh, tough, tough to say. I mean, we gross and we'll probably gross uh, 1.2 this year business-wise. You're grossing $1.2 million. How much is your net on? Right now, you're a sole proprietorship? Yeah. All right. What is it on your Schedule C? Uh, around a little over 100 All right. So you're coming home with 100000 that you're bringing over to the front page of your tax return. Right. All right. Is your wife working or is she not working? Not working. All right. So you've got 100000 take-home pay. And what are your living expenses running? Uh, average, I'd say... Four a month. About 48000 All right. So if we're spending, we'll say 50000 a year before taxes. And then taxes are, are going to be covering, what, about 30000 Yeah. All right. So if taxes are taking out another 30000 before I go to the corporate structure, let me take a look at what do you have working for you. What do you have in the way? Do you have any retirement plan at all? Uh, no. No retirement plan. All right. How about in personal investment assets? How much do you have in cash and liquid assets? Seventy-five to a hundred. That's all in, in just cash and money market, not invested? Well, that's not including what's invested in the uh, company itself. Yeah. Why are you sitting with so much cash? Uh, excuse me? Why are you sitting with so much cash just in money market? That's not making anything for you. <laughs> no, you need a financial right. planner. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do you have invested in investments like mutual funds, stocks, bonds, etc.? Uh, out of that, probably 35. Oh, all right. So I misunderstood you. So 35,000 is in mutual funds? Uh, stocks. Is in stocks. And that 75 then isn't all in cash. No, it's, no, no. It's the 45 that's in cash. Right. Okay. Anything in bonds or bond funds? No. Okay. Anything in limited partnerships? No. Annuities? No. So this is the only investment you've got, the 35000 stocks? Correct. Okay. Uh, and no retirement plan at all in your company, in your sole proprietorship? Correct. Well, as far as the business itself, there are three major or four major distinctions. You can become a partnership. And you say a partnership with another individual? Your question is what? The difference between corporations and partnerships? Or corporations? Well, well, a partnership and a sole, sole proprietorship are relatively the same thing. That's exactly right. So, right. And that's what I was going to ask. Do you do have a partner? Uh, well, yeah, I do. It's, uh, it's, oh, there's uh, another... it's a 10% ordeal, so it's, it's not 
All right. Well, you can go ahead and form a corporation because you're right. A partnership is going to basically give you uh, simply a pass through. So it's not going to have any effect one way or the other. Right. You can go to a corporate st- uh, strategy, though, and you could become a C corporation, which is a normal corporation, and that will give you certain benefits. Number one, it will let you set up a uh, a pension plan. Although, by the way, how many employees do you have? Uh, right now, in- including the uh, other guy, we're looking at 14. 14 employees. All right. You could set up a pension plan uh, with a corporation that could be funded from corporate assets. You could go ahead and uh, and also do one thing in a corporate, and there's some benefits that you can add to the employees if you choose to. You can also set up types of retirement plans that exclude certain employees. The main feature, and, they, and there used to be a lot of concern about what they call the uh, liability issue, but puncturing the corporate shield is pretty easy these days. Uh, a, li- a lawsuit against you, in most cases, if indeed there's liability, it's going to be able to, there'll be a way to come through at you. So I don't usually focus too much on the, uh, what is the nature of your business, by the way? Uh, contracting. Like? Electrical contracting. Of course, and you've got insurance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The major advantage of the of the corporation is that for tax purposes, you can buy unlimited amounts of tax shelter investments in C corporations. Mm-hmm. That's the major feature. If your income is only 100000 however, I... You couldn't get any more benefit than what you could get personally. Right. The negative side of the corporate structure is that you have to keep two sets of books. Mm-hmm. You've got to file two separate tax returns. And so uh, I'm not sure it will work to your benefit that well. Uh, what's, what's the cutoff there? Which cutoff? Uh, what's the cutoff? I mean, at what point do you, uh, would you suggest incorporating? Well, when you're starting to make more money, well, I mean, you, uh, in other words, if you were if you were bringing in three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand, right. yeah, then I would say, well, golly, if you've got three hundred thousand dollars and you're looking at trying to reduce your taxes, okay, then you're limited by what you can do. But on the other hand, the corporation could really wipe out a big hunk of those taxes and own the investments itself. I understand. And if we can be of more assistance to you, you can call me at the office during the week. And the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Well, I appreciate the help. Well, you're sure welcome. Thank you, Doug. All right, bye-bye. Appreciate you calling. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on 
any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Sunday at 605 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.